Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get to a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is ETFs. We have Sean O'Hara with us, president of Pacer ETFs. Irish much? Oh, happy uh, St. Patrick's Day, Sean. <laughs> yeah, good timing on that. Whoever booked me today <laughs> booked me on the right day, right? Yeah, I didn't even remember that it was. Normally, I have one and a half beers every day after work when I go home, but today. One and a half? It's going to be two. Ooh, go crazy. Yeah. Sean, uh, talk to me about your business. I mean, it's huge, right? The, the the ETF boom has been going on since before the long before the pandemic, but this just boosted, I think, um, interest in exchange traded funds. Well, I mean, I'm not sure I would tie it to the pandemic. The momentum has been building for a number of years, and you know, markets evolve and, you know, improvements get made. And, and perhaps the biggest thing in terms of the improvement to what would be traditionally the way people would invest, which is, a, you know, the traditional 40-act mutual fund, the ETF is sort of a cousin of that structure, except it has some inherent advantages that I think uh, investors find uh, more attractive. You can trade during the day as opposed to deciding to sell and having to wait to the close. There's some tax efficiencies that go along with ETFs. You can get sort of more targeted exposures. And, and on average, the, the average cost of owning an ETF in terms of the management fee is lower. So I think there's been this evolution that sort of has been building. The momentum certainly has been picking up. Um, you know, and if you look at the last, you know, five to seven years, you know, for every dollar that's come out of traditional mutual funds, it seems to be finding its place in its way into exchange-traded funds. And, and honestly, I still think we're fairly early in the cycle. So, Sean, given all the bricks in the wall of worry, whether it's the geopolitical issues, which are relatively new, a slowing economy, inflation, rising interest rates, what's your market call here? I think that there's a an inverse relationship between interest rates and inflation and, and PEs, the price you're willing to pay for the amount of earnings you get on a stock. And so for the last decade or so, we've had very low inflation, very low and in, in declining interest rates and accommodative Fed. And so in that environment, I think you could you could justify paying above average market multiples for the earnings that you're getting. And then what sort of is distorted it in the middle was COVID. Because we're, you know, we went through a series of earnings uh, announcements this quarter where you had 30 and 40 percent year-over-year increases. I don't think those are organic. I, I think they're just a, 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 an output of, you know, the economy being shut down and now things opening back up. Um, so if we're going to enter an environment where rates are going to rise and inflation is going to rise, I think investors should expect that PEs will have to come down unless we continue to get blowout earnings of 30 to 40 percent a year, which I don't think is likely. So then in this environment, I think investors need to sort of shift their focus away from the broad market and start to focus on putting their money in places where they have a better chance of getting the returns that they expect, given the way that the individual stocks are structured. Like we love free cash flow and free cash flow yield as a strategy to screen broad market for a smaller group of names. And so it was the ticker, Sean, that uh, COWZ. Ah, the it's cash cows. That, that, the, your, that's yeah, your that biggest um, actually, yeah, product. Yeah, it's, 
and it's up year to date, and the market's down, you know, 8% as of yesterday. So, But where are we positioned today? We're overweight energy and materials. That's inflation and oil. We're overweight staples versus discretionary. That's, you know, people with inflation and, and with all of the stimulus going away, the consumer is going to get squeezed, and so they're probably at some point going to have to make a decision to buy the things they need versus the things that they want. We're overweight healthcare in this environment because healthcare hasn't been one of those sectors that has had this big run-up, even though their earnings grow faster than the overall market. And so the, in this environment, I think you need to be more selective. We've had a nice run, acknowledge that, and start thinking about going forward. What kind of stocks will do better in this environment? Well, energy materials are your inflation play. And then generally speaking, stocks that have a lot of free cash flow and a high free cash flow yield are able to absorb those higher financing input costs that will go along with rising rates. And I, so I think that's why our portfolio is sort of acting the way it is right now. Well, and you have a lot of products that focus on those kind of stocks, not just the cows, but the you've got a global um, – Yep. Cash cows ETF. You got a developed markets. Uh, you got calf, which I like, which is a small calf. Small calf, little baby, <laughs> yeah, little baby cow. <laughs> you got a whole stall. And, of these. Have, if, and to continue this this silly naming conventions, we actually have a fund of funds version of our cash cows, which we we gave the ticker H E R D. Heard. Heard exactly. <laughs> you also have an American Energy Independence ETF. Um, yes. And uh, year to date return thirteen point two percent. Um, yes. This has to be one of your strongest products, at least year to date. Yes, it's a, I think it's probably our best performing uh, ETF year to date, followed by GCAL and then COWS. But the U.S. Energy Independent is basically focused on the midstream energy names, which is essentially storage and transportation of energy, oil and gas. And, you know, they had a, a tough time for a while, but they're entering a, a phase in the market where, if you think about it environmentally, the shutting of the Keystone pipeline, so the discontinuation right. of that progress, made the on-the-ground existing pipeline companies, by virtue of that, more 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 valuable. Right. Um, they're basically just toll roads. Yeah. Their their pricing is tied to PPI. So if we do have runaway inflation, right. the fees they're going to get for transporting the, yep. the, the, the energy, it's going to go up as well. All right, Sean, and I'm going to have to leave it there just because energy. of time. Uh, appreciate as always getting your thoughts, Sean O'Hara, President. Pacer ETFs. Now I'm going to bring in a Bloomberg reporter, um, but not just a Bloomberg reporter. Bachelor's degree from Stanford, completed two years at Oxford, a Rhodes Scholar. Boom. JD from Harvard. All right. Not bad. Uh, Asia Bagshi knows what she's talking about. She does? So, okay. Yeah. Good. Asia, thanks so much for joining us in the limited time we have you, because I assume that you're off to a giant law firm or Supreme Court yourself very soon. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about salt. What, uh, what is the possibility that some legal action spurs the salt deduction cap to be lifted? I would not say that the possibility is huge. Uh, there are a couple uh, lawsuits going on that states have brought to try to uh, either get the cap struck down in court and get a court to say it's unconstitutional or uh, to allow workarounds for their residents to try to get around the cap. Uh, but the biggest one that's at the Supreme Court right now uh, the states have lost at the lower courts, uh, and for a few different reasons. I think the Supreme Court is probably not going to take up the lawsuit. So my guess is uh, a legislative remedy is going to be the state's best option, but we're going to have to wait and see. Why are states 
saying that this tax law is unconstitutional? They've pointed to a couple different arguments. Uh, you know, one argument they make is they basically say that even though the Constitution doesn't explicitly mandate that you get assault uh, deduction for your, your state and local taxes, um, it's kind of implicit in the Constitution. It's embedded in some ideas around federalism, basically the breakup of, of power between the federal and state governments. Um, they point to the history around the SALT deduction that Congress never repealed it until 2017. Uh, and they say that history really shows that this is embedded in the Constitution itself. It's embedded in the taxing powers the Constitution creates for Congress that they have to provide this kind of deduction. And then they also point to an amendment in the Constitution, it's the 10th Amendment, and that basically reserves to the states all the powers that aren't explicitly given to the federal government in the Constitution. And they say part of that amendment is you can't coerce states um, through federal tax policy, and that basically the SALT cap is doing it. It's affecting their fiscal situation so much that they have to uh, find ways to um, reduce the tax burden on their residents. Mm. It's going to affect their fiscal policy in ways that the federal government isn't allowed to, to, to do, to coerce them to do. It does seem kind of nuts that I have to pay my state and local income tax with after-tax dollars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would make more sense yes, if I paid it all with pre-tax dollars. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, part of the argument from uh, people who, who are suffering from this is that there's double taxation going on. Um, if you live in a high tax state, and those are the states that are disproportionately impacted by the 2017 uh, change in the tax laws, um, it's, it's going to increase your burdens when you're already facing higher burdens within the state and local jurisdictions where you live. So is there any argument here that, hey, for those of us, it was clear it was a political issue uh, that the elimination or the reduction in the salt tax deduction. Is there any? You mean Donald Trump was punishing New York and New Jersey for and California for not California supporting him? Not supporting so it was very clear to many observers uh, that that is actually what the driver was here. Is there any legal recourse to that issue? Uh, the states have raised that. They said that this was politically targeting states that were primarily uh, not states that voted for Donald Trump. But so far, courts have rejected that. You know, there was a decision out of a New York federal district court and then the appeals court that um, governs both New York state and some other um, some other states. And it basically said, yes, it's true that the cap disproportionately affected um, states that didn't mirror the political party of people in power when the law was passed. But one reason it's disproportionately impacting them is is that the deduction that existed before disproportionately helped them. And so the court didn't find that to be um, a persuasive argument and also basically said that formally speaking, um, the law applies to everyone, even if it ends up impacting some states more than others based on the tax policy they already have in place. And you're probably the wrong person to ask this, but as a legal expert, but why are my taxes so much <laughs> higher? How come New Jersey and New York residents are paying such massive state and local income taxes, almost as much as I pay in federal income tax? Good schools. Right. Well, you're right <laughs> that uh, I'm mostly uh, a legal expert, but there are some answers to that. 
you know, now your state and local tax deduction on your federal taxes, it's, it's capped at $10,000. And uh, you only get the deduction if you itemize. The standard deduction right now is, I think, between twelve and 13000 And the number depends on uh, what your tax year we're talking about. Um, but you have to have itemized deductions that exceed that for it even to be worth your while. Yeah. Um, I, I, as I recall, I think one third of New York taxpayers were claiming um, the deduction before yep. um, the, the change in the tax law. So you can you can imagine how many people are impacted by this. And I think it reflects how much they're paying already in state and yep. local taxes. This applies to property taxes and it applies to right. um, either sales or income taxes. Within Bad state. politics there. Aisha Bakchi, legal reporter for Bloomberg Industry Group, joining us here. Let's get to um, Mike Vogelsong. He is the chief investment officer and managing director for Cap Trust. I don't think that's Miami Beach. Mike, we had the Fed begin this well-messaged interest rate rising regime yesterday. Can stocks perform in that kind of environment? Well, first of all, it's cold and rainy here in North in Raleigh, North Carolina. So not quite not quite Miami Beach. <laughs> uh, no, for sure. Um, I'm sorry. Your 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 question your question was about the stock market. Um, yeah, just in a rising interest rate environment, tough. Yeah, I I think that's that's the that's the sixty four dollar question, right? I mean, um, in some ways, of course, interest rates rising means that the economy is reflating and that and that we have economic activity back to life uh, after a decade of QE. Um, and in some ways, that that's that's a positive thing. But obviously, the discounting mechanism that uh, the bonds create and and are. Uh, really pushes the other direction. So what what we've seen is those those stocks that are that are sensitive to higher, that that benefit from higher interest rates, think banks, uh, have generally done quite well over the last six months. Uh, but of course the um, the super aggressive money losing, massively long duration assets uh, and stocks and companies have seen their prices just get absolutely destroyed. So there's been a huge rotation in the market over the last. You know, six 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 months, maybe even a year, if you go back far enough to February of last year, um, and, and that's 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 the that's the dynamic around interest rates, right? It's uh, helps some and hurts others. How much is the Fed, you know, talking tough but not really willing to to go the full length in terms of rates? That's the that's the it's the really important question. I think, you know, the the, the Jay Powell came out yesterday and said that. You know, there's no particular worry about going into recession next year. Uh, and, and it was, by the way, the same day that the OECD came out and said that, uh, you know, higher oil prices in the war in Ukraine will take a, a percentage point off of global GDP. I mean, that, that's a massive amount. Of course, the U.S. is the largest or second largest, depending on how you measure the economy in the world. So a lot of that growth is going to come from the U.S. So you're getting mixed messages from different organizations and different uh, different economic and governmental organizations. I, I, we were having this conversation this morning uh, among some of our investment committee, and and the question is really, um, does you know is, is is Powell simply talking a good game, so it gives him the freedom and flexibility to raise interest rates higher than he would otherwise. Um, you know, my my sense is that that he he kind of chafes under the dual mandate that the Federal Reserve has. Um, that you know this this idea of full employment and and a stable stable dollar or stable purchasing power. Um, and you know he's basically.
basically saying, look, we've got such we've got the best employment picture in a generation. Uh, we're going to get interest rates back to where they need to be, regardless of what happens to the economy. Um, so kind, kind of his Paul Volcker moment, almost uh, in a different context and a different time. But that's sort of what it felt like for us yesterday. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure he's going to be able to get away with seven this year and, and getting all the way up to two and a half percent. Hey, Mike, so just about 30 seconds. Is recession re- recession sure. a material risk to you? Uh, I think it is. Uh, we're, we're concerned about it, um, and that's that's why we're trying to square what Powell said yesterday with some of the data that we're seeing. Yep. Um, you know, there, there's some folks who are absolutely convinced we're going to be in recession by first quarter 2023, uh, and, and, and Powell basically threw cold water on that. So right. um, that that is the debate in the economic world, and I think that has implications, obviously, for bond rates, and it has implications for the equity market. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate getting your thoughts and insights. Mike Vogelson, Chief Investment Officer, Managing Director at Cap Trust, based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Let's dive in right here with David Kudla. He is the founder, CEO and CEO of Mainstay Capital Management. David, what's an investor to do when we've got rising interest rates, we've got slowing growth, we've got geopolitical tensions? Do I just throw in a towel and go to cash? Uh, good morning, Matt and Paul. Um, I don't think that that's uh, the best approach, and, and, and for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, we always say uh, within our investment committee, we want to hedge against risk, but we don't want to hedge against making money. And when we go to cash, you with the Fed raising Fed funds rate yesterday, cash still yields basically nothing. And there's more creative. We just think there's more creative ways to get at it. Um, one of our favorite ways to diversify over the past several months, and especially this year, uh, has been with commodities, which have just been on a tear. And, and that's been important because bonds have been no help, you know, this year. Uh, you know, we've got the U.S. aggregate bond index down more than 5% year to date, but, but commodities have done very well. Now, more recently, we've been through a bit of a roller coaster ride because of the Ukraine war. We had, um, an even, bigger risk premium priced into a lot of commodities, a lot of uh, oil, gas, metals. Uh, that's somewhat come back out and uh, uh, come down quite a bit. But we're back on that trend line of growth for commodities. You look at the environment we're in, there's questions about a recession in the offing. There's questions about, you know, what yeah. happened to the economy. But what we know is in front of us uh, are the ingredients for stagflation. And uh, if you look back to the 1970s, where do you invest during stagflation? Commodities. I want to ask your thoughts on the recession probability. And by the way, you are the second Stanford grad we've had on in the past hour. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. Um, what, we're a, we're what, a dime a dozen. What, what are your thoughts on uh, the recession probability here, David? Because we do have rising commodity prices, a commodity price shock, really. We do have mm-hmm. a yield curve that looks like, well, we saw the fives, tens, and the seven tens invert already today. Um, and we do have a Fed that wants to raise interest rates, what, 11, 12 times over the next 24 months? So, you know, do we slip? Yeah, it, it, it gets to be a complicated picture, but here's how we see it. Um, you know, we've got, you know, we typically looked at twos to tens as that recession indicator. Uh, I know some some now are looking at, want to look at three months to tens. But uh, twos to tens are, you know, the spread on twos to tens is down around 20 basis points. Yeah. So 
we are getting very close of collapsing down to a yield curve inversion. That's been a pretty good predictor of a recession out 12 to 18 months. And I think the concern is, though, besides, you know, those kind of um, yield curve predictors is that the Fed has a very difficult task in front of it. I mean, what if you look at the the, the statements right from uh, Jerome Powell yesterday, you know, he's talking about things. If inflation doesn't calm down, the policy committee will hammer it even harder. The labor market has tightened to an unhealthy level. What does that mean? Too many people have jobs. But what it means to a policymaker is uh, they know they just know that they've they've let this run too far. And they at least they're talking tough. Right. We got to see if they'll walk the talk, but they're talking tough. And I think if you know, we get anywhere near seven rate hikes that's in the dot plot and still a lot of the forecasts out there, uh, there is a real risk they could usher in a recession, at least a, or at least a significant slowdown. It's not our base case, but the risk is definitely mm-hmm. there. Hey, David, we got the oil ripping again today after a little bit of a pullback. WTI crude back over $100 a barrel. Have I missed the energy trade? No, I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, there is a lot of runway ahead for energy. You know, our our theme in, in energy is is our uh, favored commodity, uh, energy and base metals. If you look at, um, you know, what's been happening in the energy patch, uh, unfortunate. It's it's been exacerbated by the Ukraine war, but there's been the you know this push towards a energy transition uh, and investment there under invest under investment or disincentives for uh, the oil companies to invest further in fossil fuel infrastructure. And now we do have this energy crunch, this energy shock, and you know the the energy companies are reluctant to invest more. So as prices rise. They're increasing uh, their uh, free cash flow, their profitability. You know, look at what happened. You know, look at Occidental Petroleum today up about eight uh, percent. So I think that uh, there, there's runway ahead for several more months here, um, and I think that uh, that we are significantly overweight in our portfolios. I think investors would do well to uh, continue to hold commodities and specifically uh, energy in their equity equities allocation. All right, David, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to get your insight. Always look forward to your interviews. David Kudlow there is the CEO of Mainstay Capital Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.